Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Hope your Christmas was good. Hope you had a good time. I had a, a really nice time. It was a real treat to spend time with my kids and my wife. What a what a treat it was after this busy year of being away, out of town, out of home, so much. Gosh. And we've got a great episode for you. We've got a Christmassy episode. I'm repeating, two years ago I went and cooked a Dickensian Christmas fair with Penn Vogler, the wonderful historian who's been on this podcast um, several times before. She and I cooked. I was suffering from a crushing hangover from a history hit Christmas party the night before, but I soldiered on. I sold. That's why you pay the big bucks, folks. Uh, this episode is also a TV show. You can see what we actually cooked on History Hit TV. If you want to go to History Hit TV, you want to watch the best history channel on, on this earth, on this beautiful planet that we're lucky enough to inhabit, the best history channel on it is available. HistoryHit.tv, available in every country around the world, pretty much. You can go to HistoryHit.tv, use the code JANUARY, because the January sale has begun. It's been December, doesn't matter. It's January sale has begun. And use code JANUARY, you get a month for free, and then you get 80% off the first three months. You don't want to believe it. So please go and check that out. In the meantime, everyone, enjoy Penn Vogler and our Dickensian Christmas. I've come to meet up with food historian Penn Vogler. She's going to talk me through how Christmas was marked in the 19th century through food and drink. And of course, we're going to talk about the most Christmassy novelist of all time, Charles Dickens. Hello. Hello. How are you? Hi. Good to see you. Happy Christmas. Come Thank in. you. Merry Christmas to you. Hi. Come on in. Have a drink. Well, if you insist, it's that time of year. In fact, make a drink. OK. Well, how? <laughs> well, I thought we'd start off with some smoking bishop. Because in A Christmas Carol, the reformed Scrooge says to Bob Cratchit, we will discuss your affairs over a bowl of smoking bishop. Well, let's discuss our affairs so over some smoking bishop. How do we smoke the bishop? Our... So we smoke the bishop. Here's a little one we've made earlier. We smoke the bishop. It's mulled port, basically. Okay, lovely. It's like mulled wine. Um, there's a bit of a mulling thing going on in here, which is very easy. It's just water and sugar and then some nice spices. So cinnamon, mace, allspice and some ginger and orange and lemon. Yeah. And then to that, we add a bottle of pork, which maybe uh, you could okay. do. OK. I mean, I was out drinking last night with Team History Hit for a season. <laughs> so this can do, might go one of two ways. This will be the hair of the dog oh. that sets you... Do I, do I put the whole bottle in? Yeah, put the whole bottle okay. in. And then if... What I quite often do with this is either drink it or I sometimes make it into a jelly because the Victorians love oh, their jellies. Of course. And so if you want a slightly sort of boozy end to your to your dinner party, you can un... We could do it, actually. I've got one in the fridge. You can un... My gosh. Um, unmould a jelly. And oh. it's rather good. Well, there, the port is in. Yeah, and that's all we do. So we let it warm up, let some of the alcohol evaporate, but not all. So why do we associate Christmas with all the great novelists and poets in, in, in English language? Why do we associate Christmas with Charles Dickens? I think it's just because of A Christmas Carol, or mostly because of A Christmas Carol, because there are Christmassy scenes in Pickwick and in Great Expectations. But that book just had such a hold on people's imagination. And was it an instant success at the time? It was an instant success. It sold out in five days, I think, and it's never been out of print since. And, of course, many film adaptations, things like that. So, uh, with Dickens, was he a sort of Christmassy person? Do we know if he liked hosting big Christmases and things, or was it just accidentally he became a citizen? No, he loved Christmas. It was really important to him. And his daughter, uh, 
Mamie, when she was sort of thinking back on him, she said she, he loved Christmas for its joys as well as its deep significance. Mm. And it did have a really profound significance to him because he had this... He was haunted all the time by this fairly wretched childhood. And so through things like Christmas and through dinner parties, he, would, he sort of made up for that, I think, psychologically speaking. Those abilities to have a wonderful time, to bring people together over food and drink, became incredibly important to him. And so his material comforts were important to him after that a childhood of some occasionally rural poverty. Complete poverty. I mean, when he was 12, his father went into the Marshall Sea Debtors Prison mm. with, with his mother, the younger children. This 12-year-old kid was left to fend for himself. He had to earn all his money at a blacking factory, which was totally humiliated by, completely hated, and um, learn basically to fend, you know, to feed himself, to fend for himself, and to be hungry. And I, I guess it's that hunger, it's like that physical hunger that he really knew as a child, as well as that profound psychological, emotional hunger for security. You know, we talk about food security these days, thinking, oh, it's all about supply lines and, you know, food coming into the country. But actually, food security for children means knowing where your next meal is coming from and having an adult to make it for you who you can trust. It's a deeply kind of emotionally significant thing. And he knew what being hungry was. He knew what being hungry was like. And you can really see that in all his oh, yeah. very hungry kids. Oh. Yeah. In, you know, when all the twist twists. is looking through that bakery window. That, in fact, it's there that he meets the Artful Dodger, isn't it? Yes, so that's so that, right. that is looking yeah. through the window. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, you know, little Joe, the crossing sweep, who's possibly the most pathetic character in Dickens. He's um, up against some pretty stiff competition. Though. He's got some quite stiff competition, but he's kind of uneducated. He keeps on being moved on. What does he do? He sits on a doorstep and eats a piece of dirty bread. And for me, that's a very profound thing because people talk now about clean eating and clean food, and you think, really, when a child eats a piece of dirty bread, that puts all that into perspective for me. And, and Dickens knew what it was like, really, to be hungry, not to know where your next meal was coming from. And then we've got the beginning of Tale of Two Cities, haven't we, where the, where the, wine, the, the wine cask get burst all over the street and people sort of... Attack it! It's such an extraordinary scene, isn't it? And, and he says, like the, the blood running through the streets of Paris. It's, it prefigures uh, it. It prefigures yeah. it. But um, but also, but you get a sense of their desperation, don't you? Their desperation. One of the most incredible descriptions of hunger in a very kind of quite sophisticated, quite urban city. Dickens has, mm. you know, saying that there was nothing on the bakery shelves except a bit of dead dog preparation. There was not even a drop of oil to fry a, a husky kind of bit of you know potato chip and he's really describing hunger and it has quite an interesting conversation because in great expectations the other hungry adult male in dickens you have magwitch oh, the, yes, convict, the convict he's really hungry so he gets picked to steal food for him and dickens in a way is saying if you don't feed people this is what happened you get riot and revolution you know you're so right i remember the uh, reading great expectations at school there's the way he, the bread, I can almost remember the, I haven't read it for years, but the way he attacks that bread and he, and he eats those, he's got a word, Whittles, 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 Whittles. that's right, that's right, it's all coming back. And there's a, such a, it's such a powerful scene, it's tactile, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes, he's shoveling it down his throat in that's a way right. that sort of um, goes, seems to go against biology because yeah. it seems, to, it's kind of raw mincemeat, seems to kind of go down his throat. Right, speaking of going we down throat, have, should we get our... We should have... So if, we, if we're going to serve this... Oh, how in a, handsome. Yeah, in this, if we're going to serve this in a fairly Dickensian way, we would... It's a lovely, um, well, how do you describe this? It's a lovely... Um, it would be a punch bowl. Punch bowl, obviously. Yeah. Yes. Um, Putting punch in it. We would put our smoking bishop in it. Like, so wonderful. Pick it up and pour it in. 
Let's just hope it doesn't splash everywhere. Very good. It's the tricky thing about a paw, you've got to commit to it, haven't you? You've got to be a bit, yeah. more, bit more assertive than that. And then this goes in. This so is the orange with... With cloves. Cloves sticking out of it. Sticking out. And there, we could put it on the table. Lovely. So there's our lovely bowl of smoking bishop. Not stinking bishop, which people, quite often oh. when I serve this, people say, ooh, stinking bishop. <laughs> That's a cheese. I just inhaled a bit too much. I'm, I'm sort of feeling slightly... <laughs> You know, it hits the back of your hits it, the back of your throat. You don't have to. Um, Come on, no, no, I, I feel confident. Yeah, I think it'll be right. But um, those nice big heavy glass goblets, quite nineteenth century as well. Yes. Thank you very much. So a little bit of, and like I say, anything we don't drink can get made into a jelly. So waste not, want not. Definitely. Well, just cheers. think of all those. Cheers. Just think of all those rioting people in France and yeah. what they'd have given for a... Exactly. That's why we're not rioting. That's why we're, we're just relaxing rioting. in a nice semi-attached house in London. <laughs> yes. Even yes. though Brexit's happening. Yes, keep the hangovers going and that'll keep your... Absolutely. Bread. Keep your population supine. Hey, what would a salutation be in 19th century? Do we know in, in Dickens? Would you, would you drink someone's health? You or? drink somebody's health. Your health? Yes, your health. Your good health. That's a big improvement on port, actually. Funny enough, it's quite... <laughs> it's quite... It's quite much, There's much left for the jelly. Um, so let's just quickly go through Dickens. We, we, everyone's heard of him. During his lifetime, did he enjoy the kind of phenomenal success that, that we associate with his legacy? It happened quite early, actually. In his 20s, he started to write Pickwick papers. And as soon as he brought Sam Weller onto the scene, all these early books were published um, episodically. As soon as he brought Sam Weller onto the scene, it just took off. People and, just and what's Sam Weller? Sam Weller was Mr Pickwick's manservant. Okay. And he was very funny. He was a sort of, in that tradition of Jeeves and Worcester. How funny, okay. Yeah, I and never he was Pickwick. very funny and very, just very wry and always has a kind of the perfect little response. So, for example, he's taking Mr Pickwick through, he's guiding him through Whitechapel to go and get a coach off to East Anglia. And he notices there's all these oyster sellers down the street in Whitechapel, where there would now be fried chicken shops, there are people selling oysters. And he says, oh, it's funny how you notice that poverty and oysters always seem to go together. You know, when a man's desperate with hunger, he rushes out and can't get enough oysters. So that's a kind of, that's a sort of Wellerian expression. But so Dickens was becoming famous in his 20s. And these were written week by week. You'd buy a periodical or a magazine. Yes. And there'd be a Dickens chapter in it. There'd be a Dickens chapter. And sometimes there'd be two going on simultaneously. Oh, right, okay. And he was a journalist and he was editing. He was a phenomenal, probably slightly manic, slightly insomniac. All the best ones are, unfortunately. That's why <laughs> yes. I'll never hit, hit greatness. Too, so relax. Yeah, if you, need, um, if you need sleep, then... None of us are probably going to get Dickens' mm. output. But he wrote so much over his lifetime, you know, it would probably take... You know, I've not, I haven't read all of Dickens. You know, most people just couldn't read all of his kind of journalism yeah. and everything, yeah. And so he was very, very popular at the time. We associate him now with the growing understanding that challenges of the Industrial Revolution, these massive new cities, this underclass has been created... Did, was he an activist as well? I mean, or did he just express that through his writing? What was his sort of politics like? His politics was... It, that was a, that's a very inter interesting question because he... I think he realised that m the most good he could do would be to carry on writing. So, for example, t slightly towards the end of his life, he was asked to stand for Parliament and he said, thank you very much, but in fact, I think being a novelist is going to have more influence. But he did work very closely with an heiress called Angela Burdett Coutts. And together they sort of, you know, cooked up schemes to... They had a scheme called Urania Cottage, 
which was a place for reformed ladies of the night, reformed women who'd fallen on hard times, become prostitutes, to go and learn sort of the domestic virtues, learn needlework, learn cookery, learn how to look after a house and manage to, you know, put themselves back on their feet mm. through that door. And he ran, as well as doing all his other journalism, he was very involved in running that at the time. And on the whole, I think his view is that the most good he could do was through dramatising and characterising the big problems of the day. And what is it about Dickens that has drawn you to him as a food historian, not just a lover of literature? He writes about food so much in his novels, and in his novels, food is an expression of status, it's an expression of aspiration, it's an expression of relationships between people. I think there was a lot going on in Victorian lives. You know, you get this thing about the cash nexus, you know, that Carlyle was so worried about, that, you know, these relationships between people were being taken over by other things. And Dickens was almost saying, no, there are times which food brings us together and it shows you how people relate to each other and it shows you where you are in your life. And it also shows, you know, I mean, so Little Dorrit, for example, Flora Finching, who's Little Dorrit's sort of friend and pottery, she's always pushing a sort of little leg of, you know, leg of roast fowl or something onto her. She wants to care for her, she wants to look after her. And Little Dorrit never eats. She's probably an anorexic. It's not a word he uses but he's observing somebody who's been so damaged by her early childhood in growing up in prison. She has a very strange relationship with food, can't eat in company, for example. Wow. And then, of course, we've got the classic moment, Oliver Twist goes up to the front. And again, it's what, it, it, it's very, the, the descriptions of food, the place of food within that, the, the poor, the workhouse or the orphanage, Again, from childhood, I remember the table would be laden, wouldn't it, for the staff or for that horrible man, what's he called, Mr. something, in, in charge of the, uh, the orphanage. And, and Mr. His, Bumble. Mr. Bumble, that's right. And he was sort of fat and he was mm. glowing. The, the adults are often fat. Yes. Yes. And then, yes. and then Oliver walks up to the front and says, please, sir, can I have some more? And that's, that's the big moment. He says, please, sir, I want some more. And it's a, he was reckless with hunger and desperate. And he was, he was reckless because, in fact, there was quite strict rules in workhouses, in some workhouses, about whether you're allowed to have more or not. And so he's drawn the short straw. He has to go and ask for more. And his punishment is draconian, but quite probably realistic. And, yeah, so he's showing food about... And how adults who should be feeding kids, who these adults who are in, in charge of these children's welfare are starving them and exploiting them, actually often making money out of them, like the horrible schoolmaster, Wackford Squeers and Nicholas Nickleby, who is getting money from these poor little boys' parents to kind of look after them in a school. And his wife gives them brimstone and treacle, you know, brimstone is sulphur, to ruin their appetites, makes them cheaper to feed. Oh, I don't remember that. That's <laughs> Um, and then I've, we've got to stop swapping anecdotes, but yes. they're all coming to me now. Because yeah. then it was, uh, David Copperfield gets sent away to school with that horrible stepfather of his that just yes. makes him want to kill him. Mr. Murdstone. Mr. Murdstone. Yeah. And, um, and he, 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 gets the, he, he becomes quite popular, doesn't he? Because he spends all the money he's been given on sweets yes. and they all sit around in a circle yes. and eat them. So he, he sort of buys. Yeah. Almond cakes. Yeah. Yes. So Dickens, as a result of his childhood, he liked the material things, he liked to be comfortable. What would have happened? Because there's amazing stories of dinner parties where you've got like Dickens and Trolley, you've got the most brilliant people of the world all gathered around, aren't they? I mean, you, you must love reading accounts of those. I love reading accounts of his dinner parties. And actually, there's this fantastic account of, by two different people of the same dinner party. One is Mrs Gaskell. He was having a dinner party to kind of introduce her to London society after she went Mary Barton. 
And she said it was just very nice. And we went and saw his study and there were some nice little Dickens children. It was all so sweet. And then the other one is Jane Carlyle. And Jane Carlyle is very waspish. She's very funny. And she says, oh, the dessert was far too overloaded. It was far too lavish, you know, for a, for a literary man. And he should have kept himself more in his place. And she nice. describes what's going on on the table. You know, there's a, a candle coming out of an artificial rose, for example. And much, much too much dessert, you know, too many kind of figs and raisins and things. And so you get this lovely descriptions of people. Zachary as well was quite... That's right, Zachary. Yeah, Zachary, no, because he was... Zachary was quite... Well, they were good mates, but Zachary was quite aristocratic and he was quite down on Dickens for being a bit of a kind of self-made man. Mm. And he says, yeah, every so often there's a description of him coming across Catherine and and Charles Dickens at an evening do. And he says, Catherine was resplendent in pink satin and Charles in ringlets and a geranium. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not good. Yeah, he's writing to his mother. I think that probably sells you quite a lot about that. But Thackeray, isn't it? But that's an interesting relationship because arguably the greatest ever novel in the English language, but Dickens' average mean much higher. So which would you go for? Well, if you had just complete complete works, you'd go for Dickens. Well, of course, but if you had to go for the one novel, Thackeray might be in the chance. As a food historian, I'd always go for Dickens. No, of course you would. I mean, that's not... <laughs> but as a, yeah, that's, yes, that's fair, yeah. yes, for fun. And, and so, so we'd have gone to Dickens' house. We, we know that the table would have been over-lavish, there'd have been too much food. There'd have been a lot of food. Right. And we know a lot about what they ate because his wife, Catherine, although they famously had this very horrible separation later in their marriage, when they were together and happy, she was clearly a very good housekeeper. And she published this little book in 1851 called What Shall We Have for Dinner? And it's a book of what she calls them bills of fare, so menus and a few recipes. And she says, this is what you'd have if you're a, you know, a small family party of two or three people. And on the whole, it's kind of lots of mashed potato and you know, stodgy puddings. And she says, this is what you'd have for a dinner party of up to 20. And they're quite lavish, you know, for middle class family. It's very aspirational. There are four courses, there's several dishes in each course a lot of meat, very kind of, you know, elaborate jellies, charlotte russe, creams and things for pudding. Rather delicious, actually. I bet. As, now, as a food historian, what are the biggest, what are the biggest differences between the, the Victorian table and taste and ours? I think the biggest difference for me is mutton, because that was the most common meat, probably for most of the kind of middle classes, and that's kind of disappeared. I cook it quite often. Dickens' favourite dish was probably leg of mutton stuffed with oysters, which is amazing. Well, very good. But I had to get my mutton from Yorkshire. Swaledale, very good. So being very stupid, what's the difference between mutton and lamb? Mutton is a sheep over two years old. Over one year old, it's called a hoggart, but nobody really uses that term. And then under one, it's a lamb. And it just means that since Dickens' time, sheep have been reared in a very different way. They've been bred so that they fatten up quickly and... They've been marketed, so we think lamb is the thing. So mutton's one thing that's gone a lot. And there are a few tastes that mace is quite a Victorian taste that, you know, it's not that easy to get a hold of. But I think most of their food was what we think of now as kind of classic Sunday lunch kind okay. of food. That's when, in the sort of early 19th century, our sort of palette of kind of Sunday lunch family food, that's when that was being laid down. But you've really, you've really given me a powerful image of this man who grew up with, with genteel aspirations, but in total poverty. And the fact, it makes so much sense now in his old years. He's, he's famous, he's wealthy, he's, uh, and he's just 
eating in this sort of lovely, lavish, quite quite rich, almost ostentatious food. I think so, but it's also what is incredibly important for him was companionship. Mm. So as he grew older, he wrote some autobiographical fragments which he gave to his biographer, John Forster, and they're so similar to David Copperfield, it's really remarkable. But what he says is when he was at this poor little scrap of, you know, 11 or 12, living by himself, what he missed most was the companionship of boys of his own age. And I can really see that in those dinner parties, that's what he's doing. He's pulling his friends, particularly his male friends, to him. And if you look at his invitations to them, they're very specific. He'll say, come for dinner, a turtle and a steak, 4.30, or 4.30 for five prompt. He's very punctual. And he doesn't say, just drop in, please come for dinner. He sort of issues instructions. It's, he, he writes these invitations, so they're very warm, they're very funny, but they're almost impossible to refuse. And you can see the sort of compulsion in him to just draw people around his table. Well, middle-aged men have got a problem with loneliness and depression. I think we should all learn from Charles Dickens. I should see more of my friends. And, and, and your ten children, maybe. If you're... <laughs> I see plenty of my kids, then they're fine. <laughs> right, well, let's... I mean, you've got some ingredients out, so should we get some Christmassy food in us, as well as all this booze? Well, I thought, since it's Christmas, a very typical thing is some mince pies. I found when I was looking when I was looking for a kind of nice Dickensian recipe, I found this very interesting recipe from an old Scottish manuscript called a Florentine, which is a sort of old word for a mince pie. An early mince pie or an early Florentine would have had meat in, you know, chopped meat, and we lost that. Around Dickens' time, it was becoming sort of optional. And now when we make mince meat, we don't put it in at all. So I've got a nice Florentine recipe, which is mince meat with... Um, chestnuts, that's the thing that makes it ever so slightly different, but I thought we could make that um, with some pastry and then see how we get on. Do that and... Yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. You can bear too. did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift 
by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so put me to work. Great. Well, we make some mince pies. So I've made some pastry. It's quite hard. It's been in the fridge. It needs well, a bit I'll, of... I'll give it some um, welly. So if you just sprinkle some flour on this rather rickety table and just... It's lovely making things yourself and it does give you a kind of a bit of an insight into what life was like for... A, a scullery maid. For a scullery maid. Well, she wouldn't have been allowed on the pastry, of course. Really? She'd have had all the washing up to do. But, um, yeah, there were recipes, for example, in the 18th century saying, beat this cake, mix you for an hour. For an hour? Yeah, and you can just imagine those cooks with their lovely, big, muscly arms going, beat, 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 beat. So if you turn it, so you get a nice... Oh, we want it. Okay, so... In a nice square. Okay. Great. A normal middle-class house, I don't even know what that is, but in a sort of white-collar professional job in, in Victorian London, how many staff might they have had? That's such an interesting question. The Dickenses, when they started at, started off their married life in Doughty Street, they had three. Now, for a middle-class family, that's actually quite good going. You know, they had a cook, they had a nursemaid, and they had a scullery maid. And people think that the Victorian middle classes had a lot of servants. Actually, it was a sort of mark of status how many servants they had. And, you know, a kind of aspiring middle-class housewife might have just had one scullery maid. Okay. We, we, might, we might need a bit more flour, okay. I thought at the time. No, um, let's go underneath. And you know, a lot of these poor little scullery maids, they might have been workhouse kids, like 12-year-old yes, girls. Yes, so I can imagine, yeah. Who probably, possibly never even grown up in a house. And what have they done? They're thrown into a house, told to mm. kind of cook for the family, clean up, get up at six, go to bed at ten, you know, and they probably have no idea how a house even works. And Dickens writes about some of these poor kids in his novels. You know, you get the marchioness in um, the old curiosity shop who is kept in a basement and almost starved and kind of ritually bullied and humiliated. Who gets? Well, we got we got uh, Oliver Twist is working in that coffin shop. You get a sense of that, don't you? Yeah, exactly. Oliver Twist, who goes from workhouse to uh, apprenticeship, a, oh, yeah, supposedly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's lovely. Is yeah. that good? Yeah, right. that's good. It needs to be a bit thinner. Okay, now, we, we would say three millimetres. We, <laughs> we would say three millimetres. A, a Victorian cook might say the depth of a 2p piece or a shilling or a something. So, because if you think about our little pies, that's really good, you know, you can come around and roll my pastry. Well, I do, you, are, you are looking at a prep chef in 1998. <laughs> I I did, it was my summer job. Was it? Oh, so it's with it, so I can't cook, but I can prep. It's very odd. It's very useful. Mm. I can wash dishes too. It's very useful. Very right, how's that? What are we thinking there? Is it still? Oh, I think that's pretty good. Maybe a tiny, tiny, tiny bit thinner. Yeah, no, I think that's very good. Let's not give ourselves a hard time. It's very nice. Lovely. Okay. Right. But every time I cook like this, I just bless the people who invented non-stick. I bless the people who invented, you know, all these kind of te- things that we use. We're lucky and, to be alive today. Oh, we're lucky to be alive today. And... But um, Dickens was interesting because he wrote quite a lot about what went on in kitchens. You know, it's unusual for a Victorian man to know how to prepare food, you know, know about kitchen equipment. 
But for him, the kitchen was a sort of essential part of your moral life in a funny kind of way. You had to kind of know about domesticity. You had to attach some weight to domesticity. And it was something he struggled with, clearly, because he, he wanted to kind of live this moral domestic life. And yet he was also always trying to kind of escape it. You know, he was always travelling, going off to America on reading tours or living in France or, you know, or Italy. So there's quite a... Hang out with his mistress. Hang out with his mistress in later life, of course. But his mistress is interesting because, again, obviously I don't want to relate everything to food and chickens, but all his descriptions of older women in his novels, the older housekeepers, they're nearly all lacking. You know, they're nearly all not doing the job they're supposed to do, which is look after the kids in their care. You know, you think of Mrs Jellyby in Bleak House, and what she's supposed to do, she's supposed to look after her children, who are tumbling downstairs, her husband's going hungry to work, and what does she do? She writes letters and drinks coffee. I think because of this early experience that Dickens had, when his mother wasn't there to look after him, I think he just didn't trust older, you know, older housekeepers. Interesting. He loved the image of the young housekeeper, so probably Catherine, his wife, when they were young, he loved that image of her looking after him and looking after the family. And you see all those lovely images of the young housekeeper, like Bella Wilfer, trying to kind of learn to cook for her new husband. He loved, he loved all that. Oh, yes, David Copperfield, yeah. Now, um, what, so what about Christmas more generally? I mean, do the Victorians give us this modern phenomenon of this kind of apps, everything, world-stopping Christmas, it's when everyone... Puts down their tools. We give each other presents. It's become a kind of festival of of buying and eating and drinking and partying. Is or, or is that timeless? I think I think it was changing all the time. I think one of the reasons that Dickens wrote about Christmas so sort of passionately was because there was a sense amongst him and his some of his contemporaries that Christmas was kind of being let to to slip, oh, and actually it was a really important thing and. We needed to celebrate it and celebrate particularly those bonds between people. So there was that sense of responsibility that a landlord would have, for example, when, when we were mostly an agricultural nation. At Christmas, landlords, no matter how terrible they were, they might have, well, they probably would have been responsible for somebody in there, for all their tenants to get some kind of meat, for example, you know, some chicken or a oh, heart or something. And Dickens is trying to show with A Christmas Carol that although those bonds have broken, you need to revive them in these new urban industrial cities. And that's what one of the things he's showing Scrooge does. He learns that he, he cannot be unresponsible. So Christmas is, and we still have that too, Christmas is a time for, for giving as well as in community. So, you know, we read a lot about Christmas charities and Christmas, you know, Christmas sort of social awareness. Yeah, around homelessness or something. Yeah. So that, that was around in the okay. Yeah, I think that was around, and I think not just around, but I think Dickens was aware that it needed to, you know, we needed to remind people of it. Yeah, and so that's one of the things that A Christmas Carol does. It tells people about their responsibility to the people who are working for them. And, and families would get together at Christmas? It was, it was a big... They would reunite, would they? Or, or was Christmas time for friends and, and neighbourhoods in, in Victorian... I think... I think... Before A Christmas Carol, before Queen Victoria and Prince Albert had that massive focus on the family, Christmas was probably a little bit more neighbourly. It was probably more about bigger families coming together. So Dickens has this older Christmas in Pitwick Papers where he shows 
a, a big sort of country house and the servants come in and they all, you know, they all dance together and they all drink wassail together and all the visitors come in. And then at Carol, he's showing this kind of small nuclear family. And that's what Queen Victoria did okay. as well, show a kind of nuclear family. And I think we moved from a sort of much more communal sense of Christmas to a much more sort of family sense around, you know, the mid parts of the, mid the 19th century. Exactly. So the Victorians gave us that. They also gave us these mince pies. Well... Mouth is watering. Yeah, actually, the, yeah, the Victorians... Did they give us mince pies? Mince, uh, mince pies are quite an old thing. Yeah, it's quite Tudor. Yes, I've had a Tudor yeah. mince pie. You had a mince pie. Did it have um, did it have meat in it? I don't remember. No, actually, well, a proper Tudor mince pie would have had meat in it. Probably a um, <laughs> And the Victorians were beginning to kind of rethink the meat thing. I thought, well, maybe we don't need sirloin steak in our mince pies. But sometimes they put it in. If you did some little stars, yeah, some, stars. some nice stars on top. On top, so I'm sort of lovely. packing it in here, and so this is a slightly different recipe. Um, it's got chestnuts in, and it comes from an old Scottish recipe, calling itself a Florentine rather than a mince pie, which again would be a pie, you know, with a kind of mixture of meat sometimes, and what they called sweet meats. So all these good things, and they also obviously called currants and everything plums. So plum pudding. Oh, it's actually doesn't it doesn't uh, actually have plums. Well, in. you know, I've always wondered about that. It doesn't have plums in, but you know, th- these are just plums because they're the plum part of the. You know, you have that expression, the plum. The plum. The plum. You know. Okay, that's good. It's quite fast with two. Yeah, we're pooling our sovereignty. <laughs> Perfect. Great. Let's get them in the oven. Goodness, I feel so Christmassy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Okay, you go and then behave yourselves. Burn. Should we make something to drink to go with them? Yes, definitely. This is Dickens's punch, and genuinely his own recipe. He wow. uh, he loved punch. It was the thing that he really felt kind of made a party go off with a bang. Right. Well, hang on. I can now ask you, what is punch? So, what is punch in here? Is it's not it's not a light drink. You know, it's it's um it's got quite a bit of poke to it. Rum and cognac. Lemon, both the rind and the juice, sugar. Wow. But he's probably right. And if everyone's water. drinking the same thing, it's sort of everyone's in the same mood. Everyone's in the same mood. And there's this lovely bit, uh, bit in um, David Copperfield when Mr. Micawber, who's the very oh, impecunious Mr. Micawber, who's supposed to be based on Dickens' father. And, charming um, but useless. Charming but useless. Can't live within his means to save his life. And he comes around to David Coffield's house and he's downcast because his water has been cut off because he can't pay the bill. And to cheer him up, uh, David sends him to make some punch and he says it transformed him. The odour of burning rum, the smell of lemons and the steam just transformed him into kind of one of the happiest of men. Well, transform me into a happy let's man. How should you do that? Let's be transformed. So because it's Dickens' recipe, okay. it won't surprise you to know it's quite dramatic it's quite, it's quite alcoholic. And he wrote this to a friend of his, and he said, this will make you a beautiful punch maker for the next 90 years, I hope. So what you do is you get the alcohol warm, and then you light it. Ice it? You light it, and it kind of flames up. And he writes these very long, very kind of detailed descriptions mm. and talks about, at this crisis, you put the, put the lid on. But it was a great way. If you imagine a cold Victorian streets you've gone to somebody's house 
and they welcomed you with a brush yes. punch. You know, it'd be a great way to kind of bring colour back to your cheeks after Definitely. a long, cold walk. And also, those houses were probably much colder than ours anyway. Yeah. Definitely needed the, the kind of internal heating. You're right, because now we have ice and we have cold beers or a gin and tonic on ice. That's the sort of the grand thing to do. Whereas, in fact, in, if you, what is nicer than an air temperature drink is actually a sort of lovely hot yeah. concoction. Yeah, yeah, a lovely hot concoction. But interestingly, actually, around... You can see things changing over the century and all these things like hot punch, smoking bishop, all those kind of warming drinks, they, 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 they feel quite Georgian in origin. Okay. And I think... As the century progressed and people became much more kind of, so, well, very, very sort of socially conscious, they felt they were a little bit old-fashioned, a little bit déclassé, and they started to have more champagne, claret, French wines. You know, there was a big difference between the way that sort of aristocratic, um, you know, Victorians lived or wanted to live and eat and the way that Dickens did. I and mean, that's one of the things I like about him, that he's, he hosts in the way that makes him happy, and he doesn't really care very much about status. They, they sing, you know, he'll sing comic songs, they'll dance, they'll play games, they'll have the kids there. It isn't a big stick oh, form. Oh, sounds location. heavenly. Yeah. So we let this um, boil. It's the beginning bit. to fill this kitchen. You were able to smell this at home, but it's beginning to fill this kitchen with a wonderful aroma. Yeah, quite a... Rum. Quite, rum and cognac, quite a heady aroma. Yeah. Rum and cognac? Yeah, yeah. You could write history of the 18th century, rum and cognac. So, rum and cognac, yeah. The, yeah, the sugar plantations mm -hmm. and the slave trade and our relationship to France. That was a very yeah, interesting yeah. part of what we think about food. Okay, right, that's, right, getting, that's, quite, that's getting quite hot. I think that's probably hot enough for us to risk the great conflagration. Okay. Right. So, we need a ladle. Do you want to light it? Yes. So, so we exciting. need to have that ready. And hopefully, if you light this part... Whoa! Yeah. Lovely, yeah. What? Like that. Charles Dickens! And sometimes the flames... I think it depends how strong your booze is. Sometimes they really leap up. I actually slightly prefer it when they don't really leap up. <laughs> it's a bit less alarming. <laughs> OK. What now? OK. So once you feel it's burnt enough... Yes! ..and you feel you want to keep some of the alcohol, you put the lid on. <laughs> Starved of oxygen, Starved of flames oxygen, go out. And the flames will go Why out. did we just burn them? To get rid of some of the alcohol and oh. to... Just for the... the I think the, the taste of slightly burnt rum. So there is a reason for it as well as just a spectacle. I think there's some reason for it, but I think it's a lot to do with spectacle. Oh, the well. smell has changed a lot. It has definitely... I think it's changed its nature a bit. Yeah, I think so. You, it's, it's basically, it has cooked it. Mm. And like Dickens says in, you know, David Copperfield and Mr McCorbin makes it, it's the odour of burning rum. And so he clearly thinks that that's an integral part of, um, of making it. We then put some water in it. You might be pleased okay. <laughs> to know. So I'll give it about we'll a water it now. Yeah, we'll give it about a litre of boiling water. A litre? Oh, OK. Well, this is, this is a quite a tame drink. <laughs> now, oh, hang on, I've only checked my timer here. Yeah. Holy Moses. Ten, minute, ten minutes and 35 seconds we've had. I think they're quite happy. Are we good? Yeah, I think they're quite good. And, and tell me, um, Christmas Day, was it a lunch or a dinner? Or is there just one giant afternoon meal that sort of encompasses both? 
lunch wasn't a very big thing in those days. Dinner tended to be at four o'clock, five o'clock, maybe six o'clock. And what time you had dinner depended a lot on kind of where you were in the kind of social hierarchy. Right. So the earlier you had dinner, probably the more sort of conservative or rural or backwards you were. Okay. And the more, the later you had dinner, the more aspirational. Busy, busy, busy. You were. Stuff yeah. to do. Yeah. Because if you're rural, you'd have dinner at four or five and then you're in bed by sort of eight, eight or something, were you? Sort of... um, well, you'd have, to, you'd have, I mean, in, in the kind of turn of the century, you'd have dinner, then you'd have the evening. If you were, you know, if you were sociable, then you'd have the evening, then you'd have supper. You'd have dinner, then tea, and then supper later in the evening. Light supper. But then as dinner goes later, tea hops back, goes to the middle of the afternoon, so around the 1840s. So probably in Dickens' time, they'd be having dinner four, five, six o'clock at night, yeah. And lunch wasn't... Lunch probably wasn't such a kind of big meal. So Christmas dinner was You'd the have Christmas have. dinner. Yeah. Right. So I'm going to give these another couple of minutes. And twelve then, minutes. They've had twelve minutes. Ooh. It's beginning to... They look, they look quite happy, don't they? they what do you think? Another two. Another two, roger that. Two. OK, 14 minutes and 20. 14, 20, is that when... Henry V died, somewhere around there. Anyway. <laughs> right. How's it looking down yeah, there? Yeah, that's... Ooh, very good. Very bubbly. Ooh. Let's get them oh. out. With our little, that little sizzle. Very sizzly. With our little stars. This is going to be quite a mouth-burning occasion if we're not careful. Steamy. And what, what's changed? I mean, so Christmas is a big deal in the 19th century. Big deal now. It feels that we're quite recognisable. Is there anything that's very, very different? I think the biggest difference is we've sort of lost Twelfth Night, which I think is a shame because we used to have the 12 days of Christmas. You'd celebrate with your friends and your family throughout it. Okay, and be very stupid here. 12 days of Christmas starts on Christmas. You have to work backwards. You know, that's such a good question. So it finishes on the 6th of January. Exactly. So Twelfth Night is actually the 5th of, the right. 5th of January, 6th right. of January. And then the 6th of January... And then so it starts on Christmas Eve or something. Christmas Eve, isn't it? Anyway, somewhere around there. So it's the, it's the lovely week between Christmas and New Year's when everyone's just yeah. lying around doing nothing. Well, 12 days of Christmas. And it sort of got squeezed in Victorian times. So that's it's when you used to have the cape. It's the capitalists yeah. saying, we don't want to be guys. closed yeah. for 12 whole days. So maybe you can have Boxing Day off, but come oh, back after Boxing brilliant. Day. Yeah. But it was also, it had a bit of a reputation for being a bit wild, Twelfth Night. Queen Victoria didn't approve... It was kind of taken out of the official gazette of holidays in about about the kind of later, in about kind of 1870-ish. And it just sort of fell away. But there were fantastic descriptions of kind of Dickens' Twelfth Night. Peeps Day has wonderful descriptions of, you know, cutting the cake and playing charades or playing the king or queen for the night. In Dickens' day, you'd have had a little character to play. And you, you know, Mr. Tom Tittlemouse or something, and you'd have played him for the whole evening. And um, it was a family game and, you know, very, you know, great fun. And I actually think it's a really nice way of ending Christmas. So when you take your cards down, instead of thinking, oh, this is a bit sad, you take your cards down, take all your decorations down, Uh and then have a bit of a party. And then go back to work. I agree. Exactly. Then have some punch and some Christmas cake, you know, or twelfth cake, as it used to be called. So, should we have a go at one of Let's these? Let's do it, right. I am looking forward to this. If you get a plate down from there. Plate. And we'll do one for you, one for me, and then the others we'll do a bit later. We have two glasses. So, this is a very Dickensian 
This is literally Charles Dickens's punch, invented is... by the great man. Well, it was his recipe. I think many people ate punch at the time, but we know that he drank it and liked it, so that's good enough. Your health. Your health. Thank you, and Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas. Wowie. It's One quite... he was a great writer. <laughs> yes. It's got quite a lot of engine to it, hasn't it? Well, that's a good way to get the party started. Wowie. <laughs> I feel an all rising inside me. <laughs> oh, several, all at once. Mm. Under a bit of journalism. Mm. That pastry is just so well rolled. The perfect thickness. And consistency. Brilliant. So out. Yeah. Delicious. Thank you. Very good. And it's quite a light mince meat because it's got chestnuts in and sort of some lemon and things. It's, it's a little bit more delicate. Well, thank you so much for hosting me in your lovely house. And, uh, and really, I'm going to stride out of here with a new spring in my step. Thanks. And there's some glow in your cheeks, I hope. There's some glow in my cheeks. Dickensian cheeks. You can't see it on the podcast, but I'm glowing. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Hi everyone, thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms, but anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favour. Head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.